Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link. Or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'd be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you get those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how the show grows anyway, so that is always greatly appreciated. Appreciated. In this week's show, I'm kind of going to do a, a week ahead in politics, talking about some of the the events coming up over the next week, how uh, the gubernatorial race in Virginia matters. Uh, it's coming down on Tuesday when everyone's going to go out to vote in that state. But the ramifications for what happens in Virginia could have ripple effects that go out across the country in when you're looking forward into 2022 as far as people choosing issues to run on and things like that. But it's also going to have immediate impacts, and we're going to talk about how it's going to have those impacts in places like Congress, which is still debating the two main legislative agenda items of the Biden Biden administration to date. So that, and it's going to give us a glimpse into 2022, so what we're going to do is sort of talk a little bit about what's happening in Virginia, but we're really going to focus that through the lens of the broader debate happening in Congress, because that's sort of the thing that's going to be most impacted. And I really think it's going to, it, it doesn't really matter who wins in Virginia so much as it matters how it's perceived what happens in Virginia. So that's the agenda for this week's show. So with that, we can jump right in. So the in Congress right now, you have, there are two big things right now, both in Congress and then you have what's happening in Virginia. You have the Build Back Better uh, legislative item, which is a the main legislative item of the progressive side of the Democratic Party. And then you have the infrastructure bill, which is waiting to get voted on in Congress. So these are the two main ones that everyone is talking about. And what has happened over time is progressives in the Democratic Party have forcibly linked these two pieces of legislation together. If it was just the infrastructure bill, you could get that passed through Congress, probably with Republican votes, pretty easily. If it was about the infrastructure and this Build Back Better plan, it's much harder because not as many people want to vote for this second piece of legislation. It spends a lot more money. It has a lot more progressive wish list items on it. It's been as high as $6 trillion. It's been talked, then it was talked down to $3.5 trillion. Now we're probably looking at somewhere closer to somewhere between $1.5 to $1.75 trillion uh, is what is going to be in, in that. And that's not counting the separate infrastructure thing. So. Those are the main things that are being debated in Congress. These are the signature legislative items of the Biden administration, given that pretty much everything else he's touched so far has has failed in, in spectacular fashion. They're pretty much hinging all of their hopes and dreams on getting something through here and calling it a win. So you have that happening in Congress 
And then on the flip side here in Virginia, Virginia has off-year elections. I mean, their gubernatorial elections and their main House of Delegates elections do not happen in your your even years when you have national elections, either midterms or presidential. Virginia is always an off-year, so that means that they have an election literally every year. It's If you've ever lived there, you know how annoying it is because you literally have some kind of major election to vote on every last single year. Top to bottom. So... This is Virginia's uh, gubernatorial election. They also don't have consecutive <laughs> terms, which is annoying. So Terry McAuliffe, who won in the past, he won his first term. He couldn't run again. So you have that's how you get Ralph Northam. And now Terry McAuliffe is now running for his second term, non-consecutive. So that's what's happening there. On the Republican side, you have Glenn Youngkin, and that race is looking a lot more interesting as of late. In the real clear politics average of the polls of that state, Glenn Youngkin has taken a very narrow, a very narrow, around a half of a point lead when you're averaging out all the polls. And the big blockbuster there was Fox News, which suggested that he had an eight-point lead in the state. In a state that, you know, Obama and Biden and even Hillary Clinton all carry. This has been a pretty steady Democratic state for the better part of... Uh, probably about 16 years now. It's it, you know Republicans have made decent gains on the state side, but through a series of very unfortunate events on the state political side, Virginia has turned blue. It's turned blue mostly because of Northern Virginia, which is the main D.C., Arlington, Virginia area. You have that main area up there, which has a lot of people in it, a lot of people working in D.C. They commute in from Virginia, and so those voters who tend to be, uh, you know, big-time federal government employees, they are all your Democratic-style voters. So, you have this race going on. Opening up, you would have expected Terry McAuliffe to have, at a minimum, probably about a six-point win, but you would have expected somewhere between an eight- to ten-point win over any Republican. Just because this is where the state has trended, you would have expected a pretty easy layup for a Democrat. That hasn't happened. Over the last two months, but really it's the last month, we've seen these polls just collapse around Terry McAuliffe and have narrowed quite a bunch and now the state is effectively a toss-up. Every poll outside of that Fox News has been either a dead tie or just a one-point lead for Terry McAuliffe. In a state that's trending Democratic, this is pretty shocking. Um, now, maybe the, 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 the polarization and your normal demographics take over and you get a comfortable Terry McAuliffe win, but right now that does not appear to be in the cards uh, all the momentum is with with the Republicans, and it's moving away from Democrats. And in fact, the Democrats are getting pretty desperate at this point. So, um, this election is our first really big election. It's close to DC. It's our first real look at what's going to happen in a post-Trump Biden is in the White House world. What are elections going to look like in this kind of environment? So Virginia is the first true test that we're going to get where they, you know, you have Terry out there, Terry McAuliffe running around trying to nationalize the race, make it all about Donald Trump, ironically. Not talk a lot about Joe Biden. Uh, He doesn't want to talk about him. 
but he has nationalized the race. Whereas on the other side, the flip side, Republicans are talking only local issues. You've got education. You're, they're hammering away on the education issues just day and night. You're hammering away on things like COVID. You're hammering away on things like spending and just running the state better. He has kept it on pretty local, important issues. So you have this dynamic here playing out where the better campaign is very clearly happening on the Republican side. That, I mean, it doesn't really matter. The better campaign is clearly Glenn Youngkins. If if Terry McAuliffe wins, it's because of where Virginia has trended in the last couple of decades. It has trended away from Republicans and towards Democrats. And it's trended that way mostly because of the voting style in Northern Virginia, where most of those people are Democrats, and they have the numbers there to flip the rest of the state, even though the rest of Virginia is mostly a a red state. It's kind of like when you're in Illinois. Illinois is a pretty easy Democratic column state, but that is just because of the Chicago area and just how much weight it throws on the rest of Illinois. So with that said, you have all you have this the swirl of things happening. You have What's happened? The debate's happening in Congress, and you have this Virginia gubernatorial race. And everyone in Congress is watching what's going to happen in Virginia. Now, you know, if you've watched the news somewhat, that there have been a couple of failed votes in Congress over the Build Back Better plan and the infrastructure bill. Biden tried in September, and he tried again uh, this past week in October to try to get Congress to pass these bills. And both times, the the rumors were he was going he he met with leaders and he was going to try to push through the infrastructure bill first that's what Nancy Pelosi lined up to do that's what Chuck Schumer lined up to do and you had this meeting with the White House with Congress and the goal was to push across the infrastructure bill first cuz that's the easiest thing grease the skids a little bit to try to get some movement both times you, that did not happen. Both times, Joe Biden caved progressives and allowed them to hold the infrastructure bill hostage in order to force a vote on this much larger spending bill. So you have this happening in the background, but with this race coming right up to it and with Democrats looking at it and thinking, oh, we're going to lose this and we're likely going to lose in 2022, you have this desperation beginning to set in where... Uh, this was even reported in Politico, too. Terry McAuliffe has been shocked. Uh, there's been no vote on this thing. He would love to be able to say, oh, we're going to, you know, this is a great thing. This is how we're going to use this here. This is how we work together with this administration. But you don't get that. So they don't get that positive news. Um, if if Terry loses, you're going to get a, a lot more political pressure. And so you have Biden whiffing twice here. And he, he's now going into Europe. So he, the White House basically has no presence in Congress as this continues to play out. And so that's why all of this matters. This is why Virginia in particular matters. If Terry McAuliffe loses, you're going to see outright panic from both the White House and the National Democratic Party. They're going to panic anyway if this is a close race. If it's if it's anything less than Terry McAuliffe, I mean, if he wins by like three or four points, they'll say, oh, you know, this was a walk, you know, the polls were wrong, you know, we, no one's panicking here. If it's anything less than three points, there's going to be outright panic, whether it's visible or not. I would say they should panic if it's anything less than five points because you would expect him to be able to win in a standard year in Virginia with five to eight points. He's a standard Democrat. He's running a bad pick campaign, as I've written several times for the Conservative Institute. He's about the closest thing you could find to, you know, Martha Coakley, the Democrat who lost to Scott Brown 
in Massachusetts right before the the Obamacare vote that, that you know there's shades of his campaign and hers there where her losing effort were are being mirrored with his and this is a little bit more shocking in his case because Terry McAuliffe is in fact an incumbent here he should know how to win this state but he is floundering greatly across all of that so you have this election playing out here and then the other thing you have here is is the deadline for government uh, shutdown stuff so uh, McConnell worked out a deal where they punted the government shutdown into the middle of December and said he was willing to help them out here. Mainly, this was about throwing a line to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and giving them more room, more wiggle room here to push against Democrats. Um, so he made this deal, he got it through, and so now Democrats are coming up to it again. So they've got this. They've got the Virginia election on one side, and they've got this deadline in December coming up here. Now, they can absolutely pass something in the Build Back uh, Better plan, Joe, uh, the main piece of legislation here, that would fix the debt spending issue. No problem. They can pass it through the reconciliation process. They don't want to, but they can. So that's the other thing you got here. You've got this dead. You got you know. You've got this deadline here in December, pushing up against the Virginia election. So you've got multiple things happening here. So by December, Democrats have to figure out how they're going to pass both this infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better plan. How that's going to work out, I don't really know. Uh, like I said, this past week they were they pushed up against it like there was going to be a vote. You had Biden talking about maybe pushing through an infrastructure bill first, but that did not happen. If the president demanded a vote on the infrastructure bill, there would be pressure on progressives to support that. And Nancy Pelosi has certainly supported this types of deal. What has happened, and see, what happened this past week is that Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and the White House all sort of had this plan that they were going to try to push through a vote on infrastructure first. What happened in the background is progressives were able to torpedo this and get Biden to effectively shock Pelosi and Schumer by sidestepping them and getting them to say, well, you know, we'll work towards passing these together. Well, they don't have a deal to pass these bills together. So when you say that, you're effectively saying, well, there's going to be no vote. We have to figure out how we're going to go negotiate this out. So progressives have effectively been able to control the White House on this thing. They're trying to get as much as they want here. There are some, you know, every night, you know, you read news stories about once a week about, oh, you know, both sides are coming together. They're getting closer on a deal. Maybe it's truer now. Maybe it's not. Who knows? But you, you see these pop up, and then when push comes to shove, no one trusts anybody, and so they don't get anything done. Now, on my side, you know, just looking at this conservative, more Republican, I'm hoping they don't trust each other at all and nothing goes through and this thing just all falls flat on its face. I believe, just looking at this politically, they'll come to something. They'll figure something out. But they have to trust each other in the end. So where we are now is there's going to be a third vote on this. They're going to plan a third vote to try to figure this out. Uh, Think of it like vote 3.0. We had 1.0 in September. That was a big, fat mess and failed all over the place. 2.0 was this past week at the end of October. 3.0 is going to happen sometime in November, most likely. And this will involve, there'll be a House vote and there'll be a Senate vote. And the question is, can they get a version of this bill that's acceptable to both the Senate side and the House side. 
So far, they haven't been able to because you have uh, Cinema and Mansion not really saying if they support any of these stuff, any of these things. And you have progressives who are wanting more and more and more and being told they're going to get less and less and less. So that's the dynamics there. You have you have this vote being played out and you have the political pressure being ratcheted up because everyone knows that any political momentum they have could be cost them in this Virginia race. And, and part of the reason they're watching the Virginia race so closely is because of Joe Biden. His polls right now are absolutely abysmal. And if, if by a miracle that Terry McAuliffe wins this race, it is only because Virginia has become so polarized that there, can't, there aren't just aren't enough Republican voters there and people are refusing to vote any other way. Because you could see Virginia turn red and go for Lynn, Lynn Youngkin purely on Biden's approval ratings because they are in the tank. If you average them out, he, he, Joe Biden's approval rating is somewhere between 40 to 42 percent with 52 to 55% of people in Virginia probably disapproving of the job he's doing. So that means when you're like you're doing a pulling a Terry McAuliffe here, you're nationalizing it, you're tying yourself to Biden, you're attacking Donald Trump. If you're doing that, you're tying yourself to a sinking ship here in the form of Biden's polls. He is not gaining you voters. In fact, he's probably costing you voters. Here's something you else may not know too. Joe Biden currently has the worst approval ratings of any president in his first term outside Donald Trump. And I feel like you almost have to put the caveat there with Trump because Trump was just so extreme. Biden is supposed to be a standard issue politician, and he's having the worst polling that you're going to find anyone outside of Donald Trump. For everyone who voted for him and, you know, did so on the basis that, you know, Joe Biden was far more normal, his polling is flat out abysmal. You're talking right now his approval ratings nationally is hovering around 42.6% if you average it out. It, it, over the last, you know, 2 weeks ago he had crashed down to around 45% and over the past 2 weeks he's lost even more momentum and he's really testing that 42% number. Uh, his disapproval rating is much closer and above 52%. It's cr- currently at 51.9. It's hovering right around that 52% line. It hasn't really pushed any higher than that, but you are seeing you are seeing more movement of people losing faith in him. So you may not necessarily disapprove of him, but all of a sudden you may become one of those who are uncommitted in the middle. You're not sure of how he's doing. You're not willing to say that he's you have an approval rating of his job. And this is where this is where your your slight this is where your moderates are sitting, this is where your independents are sitting, this is where your slight, um, you know, light blue type of person is sitting where they they did the thing, they voted for Biden, but now they're looking around saying, well, that wasn't that great. He's incompetent. If you look at Andy's polls, that's what they all say. He's incompetent and no one thinks he's doing a good job. So the question here for Biden's numbers and why this becomes important for everyone else on the left is where do his polls settle here? So for Donald Trump and a person like Barack Obama, they could have really bad polls for a period of time. They would eventually edge back up. So Donald Trump effectively had a floor of around 40%, 40 to 42%. He could dip below that for a little bit of time in the polls, but he would always bump back up around that. 
The same was true of Obama. Obama had always had very high personal approval ratings. People didn't always approve of the job that he did. But you could get, between the combination of those things, if he dipped down and people didn't like what he was doing for a while, he could always bounce back up around that 40 to 42% range because he had a fan base within the party. He had a hardcore set of supporters. Well, the problem with Joe Biden is that he does not have that. There are not these people who have always wanted Joe Biden to be president, like there are people who wanted Donald Trump to be president no matter what, or wanted Barack Obama to be president no matter what. You didn't have that, and you don't have that here. He does not have a cult of personality like those two did. Now, you could say, well, with polarization the way it is in our politics, that's probably going to be enough to keep give him some level of political support. And you're probably right. The question is, how big is that? Trump and Obama had very distinct fan bases. Joe Biden was a a compromise candidate. He was a coalitional candidate. He was the person who could win the primaries, unlike pretty much any of the others. And everyone can say, okay, well, he's good enough. I don't think he's the best, but we can unite around him and win the general election. He won the general election, and now, as we're seeing here, he doesn't really know how to navigate his coalition here, and everyone's fighting about it. So you have him here as the coalitional candidate where if everyone just basically decides, you know, I just don't like him, if you, you could lo- potentially lose one of those coalitions. You probably aren't going to lose it in a general election, but when you're trying to navigate things here, everyone's willing to say, yeah, we don't like him. So then it's a matter of, what do you do if you know your own fan base doesn't like you and you're having to deal with them in Congress? Um, that's really the hard part here. Um, that, I mean, that's the hard part. We don't know where that is. And and on that point, on the polarization point, I'm, you know, if there is people are just saying, well, you know, I hate I hate Republicans so much, I'm just going to say the Democrat is doing good. Uh, that's the only way that Terry McAuliffe wins this race. Virginia has to effectively set up for him to be a polarized race where he would just say, well, I don't like Republicans, so I'm going to vote for Terry McAuliffe. If it is anything less than that and people vote on the issues, he is sunk. And that's what's going to be really interesting in that race. So you've got Biden sinking, and it could be costing Terry McAuliffe a race. And if that happens, you know, who knows what happens next because things are going to get bad. And what's happening here is that Democrats are looking at this, particularly Democrats in Congress. The progressive left, the moderates, all of them, they all know this instinctively here, which is that time is running short. They're, the House members are elected to a two-year term. That started in January. Everyone knows, effectively by the end of this year, there's not going to be any chance to pass any other major legislation in Congress, absent something, absent some massive emergency coming on board where everyone has to answer the bill. And that's because there's the, everyone believes that Democrats are going to perform more poorly in Virginia and then they're going to wiped out in 2022. A president with these kind of approval ratings is going to get wiped out historically. That just happens. You can pretty much count on it. Right now, we have a 50-50 Senate, and you have Democrats with a five-person lead in the House. In 2022, uh, it would not be beyond the pale for Republicans to win 20 to 40. And this is just a standard, what your sta- my standard expectations would be given where things are headed. You would expect Republicans to pick up 20 to 30, 20 to 40 
people in the house and maybe pick up two Senate seats. And so then it'd be 52-48. That would give them control of both chambers. It'd be a very hard-fought race, but in a standard midterm, that is a viable thing to believe. If Youngkin wins in Virginia, everyone's going to change their perceptions. If he wins, it doesn't really, I don't know that it matters how much he wins. I mean, if he wins big, which I don't expect, um, that would obviously change things. But if he just wins automatically right now, I would tell you that my projections for the Republicans in, in 2022, I would expect somewhere, I would expect more than them to gain more than 40 seats in this House and probably somewhere between two to four Senate seats. And I would be leaning hard on that four number. I would expect closer to four Senate seats in that kind of a year. And it, it, that could fluctuate greatly because I would expect a lot of retirements in the House. And maybe even the Senate where Republicans just say, there's no way I'm going to win this year. I don't want to go out like that. So we're just going to retire and we'll let them figure it out. And that becomes a much easier pickup for a Republican. Happening also, too, is you have all the redistricting happening behind the scenes, and Republicans control a whole lot of that. And just by itself, if this was just going to be a neutral election with nothing else, Republicans would be expected to gain somewhere between two to six seats just on that alone. So, and there could be more there, depending on how aggressive some of these states get. So, we're heading into a Republican year where things are going to be trending towards them, and they're expected to do really, really, really well. So with that threat on the horizon and the immediate canary in the the coal mine moment here with Virginia, you have Democratic moderates getting increasingly skittish about taking these hard votes because they're the ones being told you have to take it across the chin to pass these really progressive things that no one else but the progressives want. Progressives are trying to hold out and, and flex as much leverage as they can on this situation, but the pain is not going to go out on Republicans on this. It will go on to these these moderates. Uh, that's why I, I've said for a while that Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, they are covering and providing cover for other people, particularly in the Senate, uh, probably covering for the, the senators who are going to be up for a re-election in places like Arizona, New Hampshire, and Georgia. There are people who are facing pretty tough elections there. There are obviously other states involved here, but you, know, you have that in play where they're probably, you know, Democrat, the, the hard left, the, these progressives, they like to say, oh, just one or two senators is holding us back from getting what we want, which is not true. It's it's 52 senators preventing them from getting what they want. That aside, these are also the only senators who can win in these states who have a Democratic emblem next to their name. These hard progressives could not win in any of these purple or even slight blue or slight red states. They couldn't win at all there. So... That takes a lot more political skill than they have. And you have Manchin and Cinema providing cover for some of these more vulnerable people who are up for re-election. And that, I think that that's going to matter as far as helping them build their power base in the Senate. And it's going to matter in the House, too, for the exact same reason. So that's sort of the, the morass of things that we're looking at over this next week. You have all these political things playing in. Everyone's trying to figure out what they're going to do here. And everyone's looking at Tuesday. And Tuesday of the day, we're going to find out the election results. And who knows? I'm looking at this leaning towards, I think there might be a Republican win here. I wouldn't have thought that two weeks ago. I've written multiple columns now saying that it's it's Terry McAuliffe's race to to lose. And I still think that. I just think he's actually done enough to lose in this case. So 
These are the main things that everyone's looking forward to 2022. And again, this doesn't factor in things that I've been talking and writing about for the past year, practically now. You have inflation growing. You have now slow economic growth. We went from a, a second quarter 6.7% growth to 2% growth in the third quarter. That is a dramatic slowdown. If you're, if you know, some of the the definitions of stagflation actually factor that in. If you have high inflation with slow growth, you're hitting a stagflation style environment, and we have it now. We have a definition of stagflation potentially occurring now in the third quarter. The question is, is this a multi quarter deal? Since that's how we measure this stuff economically, and. You know, I, no one knows, and that's going to have political ramifications too. I, you know, I keep saying to my Democratic friends and to just basically anyone who listened, you cannot take lightly the threats of people with, you know, not being able to afford something at a grocery store. You just cannot ignore that kind of thing. So this is, you know, all, everything that's happening now ignores inflation. It ignores that slow growth. It ignores that stagflation stuff. It ignores China. You know, I've spent some time talking about Evergrande and the China situation. Right now, that's kind of being paused while while China forces the owners of those companies to pay off some of these debts. So that's how they're meeting some of these debt obligations. Can that go on for a while? Probably. It, can it go on forever? Absolutely not. Um, there's no telling when that balloon will, will finally go under or, and how China decides to deal with it. So there is a there's a lot of things happening politically and economically that are creating an environment here that's causing Democrats to begin to freak out because they've got a very short amount of time here to figure out what they're going to do in Congress. The votes haven't happened yet, but they've got to force something to happen here soon. And uh, the thing to watch this week, first watch the Virginia election results, see who wins, see the margins, and then watch Congress. Watch for panic to set in if it's a close race or Youngkin wins. And watch to see if they try to set up any snap votes, some really quick votes to get members to commit on something because they need to commit as early as possible because the more they wait, the less likely it is that people are going to vote. So because you could probably strong arm these progressives into some kind of victory. If a moderate decides that they're going to lose, if they vote for one of these things, you're not going to get them back on board. And that's just the political reality of it. They're not going to vote for a loser in their minds. They're going to vote for something that helps push them across the finish line, or at least allows them to have a fighting chance come the 2022 fall. So those are the things to watch. Watch Virginia, and then watch the reaction of particularly Pelosi in the House, and see if Chuck Schumer decides to lean on that as well. I'm not sure if he will, um, but his input will be needed. It'll mostly come down to Pelosi and how she decides to navigate this thing. If if Republicans pull off the shocker of all shockers here and win Virginia, um, <laughs> all bets are off. All bets are off, and you're going to see some people say some crazy things about what Republicans can do in 2022. Elections are always a little bit different, even midterms, where you can kind of lean on some of these models and kind of depend on them more that kind of tell you what's kind of going to happen. But if Democrats lose big here, you're going to see a lot of pain in Congress and and start looking for those retirements because people are going to want to act pretty quickly. So that is all I've got for this show. I don't have a light item set up for this week. Uh, I've been spending all my time watching Tennessee Titans and the Atlanta Braves. Obviously experienced the heartbreak of the Braves not winning on Sunday night, so now they've got to go back to Houston for Game 6. 
Hopefully they pull it off there. But the good line item thing for this week, it really does look like the Tennessee Titans have wrapped up the AFC South already by beating the Indianapolis Colts this year and sweeping them in that two-game series. It's really nice when you've got the... uh, You've got that whole division thing locked up this early in the year. So hopefully they can finish that out. We'll see. They're going to get one of the few primetime and experiences they've get throughout the year, although right now, if they you've told me they wanted to rest pretty much all their starters for this Rams game on Sunday night, I wouldn't blame them at all. So that's kind of where we are with that sort of thing. So that's all I've got for this week's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning. So make sure to sign up before that and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you like, if you, if you liked it, enjoyed it, make sure to send those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again. But until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week. And I will see you guys in the next episode.